0: Well, hello and welcome. This is A Reason for Hope and we are with you live for the next hour to receive and with the help of the Bible, answer your questions on God's Word. We believe the Bible is everything it says it is. God's Word, inspired by Him, breathed out by Him, alive and profitable for many things. And we are glad that you're joining us today to delve into the Bible. So if you have questions maybe a verse or passage of scripture that's uh, confused you you'd like kind of expounded upon maybe you're going through something in life and you'd like to honor the lord but not sure how to do that maybe world events or world views from a, from a biblical perspective really any honest question that you have as long as you know we're going to delve into the bible to find those answers that's what we're all about here at a reason for hope your questions do guide the show we never know where it's going to go it's all based on your questions So we're certainly glad you're joining us and sending your questions in to us. My name's Dave Robson. I am your host today, and we'll be fielding those questions on our various platforms as they come on in. Also with us, Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, Found out
1: how to completely remove a wall from existence.
0: How do you completely remove a wall from existence?
1: You knock it down, and then it becomes a floor.
0: (sighs) Well, we hope that helps you out at home, viewers. Certainly helped me out a lot. Also with us, Pastor Peter Martin. How are you doing? Doing good. Yeah. Now, you're a dad of two kids now. Do you have any dad jokes for us? No. No? Not at all? Okay. Well, that's, that's okay. We're, we're, glad, we're glad you're here. I'm
1: the only one here who isn't a dad. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: know. And you have all the dad jokes. It's incredible. Well, uh, there's various ways that you can be part of the show, various platforms. Obviously, if you're seeing us or hearing us, and you've already found a way. If you listen to us on the radio, on Reach Radio or an affiliate, uh, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded um, but do send us your questions to questions hope at gmail.com that's our email address questions for hope spelled out at gmail.com and we'll endeavor to get to your question on our next show and consider joining us when you can on one of our live platforms and then you can uh, be following along live with us uh, reason for hope is a ministry and outreach of calvary christian fellowship of tucson arizona so keep that in mind as you're trying to find us we are live at our website, CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. Follow the Watch Live tab. There's a chat function right there. Also on Facebook, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And of course, a chat function there as you watch along and participate. Uh, on YouTube, the channel is A Reason for Hope. So if you're trying to find us on YouTube, look for A Reason for Hope. And we are live there as well. We also have an app that you can download on your mobile device. Look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson and look for the the, the red symbol with a little white dove, and that's our app right there. So you can watch us on your mobile device, or even Roku and Apple TV as well. You can follow our senior pastor, uh, Pastor Scott Richards, who's not with us today, uh, but we'll be tomorrow. Lord, winning. You can follow him on Twitter at scott r for h. That's Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. And do remember to like, subscribe, share, click the bell, all those things, the various things that you do on the social medias. Uh, so you can get notified when we're live and and share us around. We'd love to have more people um, involved. This is an outreach. We'd love for, for people to come to know the Lord. We've had the privilege of seeing that happen. So so do like, subscribe, share all of the things. With all that being said, I think I covered everything. Peter, you want to pray for us today before we proceed?
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: for sure. That'd be great.
2: Father, we love you. We're thankful for all the amazing things that you do in our lives. Uh, we thank you for your love and your care for us. We do pray that right now we'd be able to dedicate this time to you, that we'd be able to study in your word and your truth and allow that to guide and direct our conversation and our thoughts right now. And in your name, mm. amen. Amen. It's true. Amen.
0: Well, it's Tuesday today again already. Usually on Tuesdays, you guys do your apologetic Tuesday. Apologetics being study of what we believe and why. It's not it's a study of being sorry, although I'm sure you have lots of things to be sorry about. But um, do you guys have something you wanted to share with us today?
1: Yeah, the uh, Christmas season's coming up, so we thought it'd be appropriate to discuss the incarnation. Now there's, uh, unfortunately, people who would even call themselves Christians who would either flat out deny this or misdefine it in such a way where some uh, non-negotiable territories end up being violated So when it comes to your benefit and your edification, uh, Peter and I just wanted to go through some of the key passages in understanding what we believe about Jesus when he entered history, adopted human nature to his already divine nature, and became a unique entity known as the God-man. Now, obviously, we're being very careful in how we phrase things, because any Lengthy discussion on the nature of God inevitably descends into heresy, so we just want to stick to Scripture. Usually, when people are bringing up the Incarnation, or at least with good intentions, they want to emphasize three passages. First is Psalm 90 and verse 2, a necessary description of God being eternal in his nature. The second is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, noting that the one who would be born in Bethlehem, specifically Bethlehem Ephrathah, we'll get to that in a moment, would be not only one who was going to be from the line of Judah, but whose goings forth, his activities, were from old, from everlasting. That he's the only one in existence with a pre-existence. We don't believe in reincarnation. God's the only one who incarnated. And then finally, of course, the first chapter of John is a big one to understand the significance of what happened on that Christmas day. (laughs) Other secondary passages would, of course, be Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2. But when we're talking about these issues, again, just like with the Trinity, just like with creation, just like with anything else, if we're going to make claims, we want them to be based on Scripture. So when we say incarnation, let's first, I guess, start with the dictionary. If Any of you listening here in our local Arizona bouts or with a heavy Hispanic population, you know you've been blessed with the essence known as carne asada carne is a, another way of phrasing a form of meat well carnate incarnate enter into meat or into flesh that's the idea in the languages i'm being loose between greek and of course spanish but we're having a little fun here so just keep that in mind when we're talking about incarnation that someone's entering into flesh but that someone is there that's what we mean now when we base these on scripture, of course, we want to start with the fundamentals. Is God eternal, or does he start to exist at a certain point? The question's asked, you know, when uh, is God's birthday? Or if you want to be a little less cute, you would say, uh, who created God? that That's the concern behind this. When we say that God's eternal, we don't just mean that he has no end. We will fit that description as well. But he had no beginning he's the entity that existed and introduced the concept of time if you invented something obviously you don't have to be made of the stuff you introduced so just again note that summary and illustration when we're talking about god's nature psalm 90 and verse 2 is the most straightforward in describing this this is the psalm of moses wherein worship and acknowledgement of who god is he starts with that point of emphasis and saying From the goings forth of old, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, that constant status of him being who he is, that he didn't become God, as some cult groups would emphasize, or that he could be recognized as a deified state in line with his power compared to other heavenly creatures, like some bad teachers would emphasize. We understand that as a constant, a fundamental part of God's nature he did not start, he's the starter. So what happened in the moment of history when Jesus came on the scene? Well, that's when we go to Micah and the
2: Gospels. Uh, Yeah, yeah. so essentially what we have in the Old Testament is we have some passages that can set up an idea that God can draw near or come close. And there are instances, if if you're familiar with your Old Testament, there are instances in which God puts on a form that man can perceive, right? So sometimes he does this through visions. Like in the case of Isaiah, you read Isaiah chapter, uh, chapter six, Isaiah receives a vision of God. That's how he was able to perceive God because God is beyond our comprehension. As Sean said, he's a timeless, spaceless being. What would that look like? Well, there's no way that we can even comprehend what that would look like. So God has to denigrate himself. He has to humble himself into an image that we can comprehend to an extent. So sometimes he does that in visions, like in Isaiah, like in Ezekiel. Other times he does an interesting—he he takes on a body. Uh, we see this in, say, Genesis chapter 18, where uh, God comes and begins to talk to Abraham. He starts eating food with him. He drinks with him. He talks with him. It's a really interesting indication. We also see this in other passages in Genesis, like, for instance, when Jacob Literally wrestles with God. Obviously, God has some sort of a corporeal, he has some sort of a carnal body that he is able to interact with, that he's able to touch. But all these things go away from who God really is. This is why, say, in John, in John's gospel, John has said, No one has seen God at any time, right? No one can actually see God. No one can actually see his being in the way it truly is. Even to Moses, Uh, God says, you can't see my glory and live. You can only see the after effects of it. You can only see the back of me is the way he words it to Moses. God is too holy. uh, That's a word to mean separate uh, or set apart for us to be able to comprehend in our our human minds. And so God has to, again, humble himself in a way that we can understand him. And all those are contained within the Old Testament. But there's this interesting promise that is contained in passages like Isaiah chapter nine. That's one that's uh, quoted a lot during the Christmas of the Advent season. Uh, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and upon him will rest the governments of the world, and his name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So you have this idea that God isn't just going to appear in a form that we can comprehend or understand. He's actually going to, as Sean put it, take something on. He's going to introduce a nature to himself that he didn't previously have. This is what we call the incarnation, that God was born in a moment of time, in a moment of history. Uh, In Micah 5, verse 2, as you already worded, there was a promise that a ruler was going to come from Bethlehem of Ephrathah, whose goings forth were from old, from everlasting. Once again, this is not just someone like a Davidic king, right? The kings that the Israelites would follow that embodies God's authority onto the earth. This is God himself, someone who has eternal pre-existence. That He never began to exist. He's always existed. Uh, In John 1 verse 1, John puts it this way, in the beginning was the Word. Uh, He does this very intentionally. He doesn't say in the beginning the Word started to exist. He says in the beginning was the Word. No matter how far back you want to stretch the beginning, the Word already existed, and the Word was already in conference with the Father. The Word was with God. He was face to face with God, and He was God to His very essence and nature. Later on in John Sam's Gospel, Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, right? This is, again, an affirmation that Jesus exists outside of time. He didn't begin to exist, but he did enter into existence at a particular time, and that's what we celebrate in the Christmas season. Now, as Christians, we don't want to just talk about the theology of what the Incarnation is, but it is important to talk about what the Incarnation means for us, Uh, As human beings. So, I'm going to read from the book of Hebrews just a couple passages and I'm going to throw it back to you. Uh, So, from a biblical perspective, I hope I've laid out a case that there's no other way to interpret it. Jesus is not a prophet, he is not an angel, he is not an exalted uh, hierarchical being that God created for this purpose. Jesus is God. Now, the importance of it is astounding. So, this is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, "...has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they." Now, what is the important? Why do we celebrate the incarnation? Why is it so important? Some can understand why we celebrate the resurrection, right? That would be Easter. That's very important. Jesus died for our sins. he rose again. But why do we celebrate the incarnation? What's so special about the fact that God became flesh apart from the fact that he used that body to pay the price for our sins? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives us a key here, a really important key. Up until this point, God communicated through, you can put it this way, he communicated through emissaries. He sent messages, if you want to put it that way. He gave messages and revelations, verbal revelations of what he was like to trusted individuals. He used angels, which is another word for messenger, by the way, uh, actual celestial beings to do that sometimes. But more often than not, he used prophets. He dictated a message to these men and these men then dictated these messages to everybody else. And the writer of Hebrews, whoever this person might have been, the writer of Hebrews is saying the incarnation is special because man is always wondering what is God like? What kind of being is God like? Not what kind of being is he like in his immaterial sense, but what kind of being is God like in his character? Does he care about us? Does he love us? I know he has a lot of power, but does he actually care about what's going on in my life? The incarnation is, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is the incarnation is God's fullest, most perfect revelation of his character to mankind. He didn't just tell a story and it's kind of like a this person says that God is like this. God actually came into this plane of existence. He lived a perfect human life and he demonstrates his great love for us, not in sending a proxy to die for our sins, which is what the cults would have you believe, that God just sent a a sub He sent somebody to do the heavy work for him. In Christianity, we believe that God himself bore our sins. He didn't delineate or delegate this behavior or this task to someone else. He took it on his own shoulders to die for your sins, giving us perfect and complete proof of God's love and care for us. Beyond that, Jesus gives us God's character and his moral behavior, the way that he treats people becomes a symbol for how we understand God. This is why we have four gospel accounts. Why do we spend so much time as Christians studying the life of Jesus Christ? Because when you're studying the life of Jesus Christ, you're understanding what God is like. It's one thing to read in the book of Psalms that God is close to the brokenhearted. It's another thing to see Jesus at a funeral weeping with someone, or visually looking at uh, the funeral of a a little girl and actually pulling her out of Hades, bringing her up from the grave, and bring her onto this plane of existence in order to settle the hearts of the parents around her. It's, it's one thing to, to really believe those things. It's another thing to see Jesus act that way, to see him be grieved, to be moved in passionate ways towards the afflictions of mankind and seek to alleviate those afflictions with his power. And once again, to put skin in the game, to put that literally, to actually die for us in the things that we suffer. Uh, this is Hebrews 2 verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Right? God can actually call us brothers. There's an interesting passage in the Quran where it actually says that God, the the highest level I can relate to God is that of a master to a slave. And to be honest, like we as Christians shy away from that. But to be honest, Muhammad is being overly generous about the nature of God. Why? Because a master and a slave are at least of the same species. They're just in a different economic class. God is not even the same species as us. We're more like to God as a dog is to you or a cat is to you. What kind of a friendship, what kind of a loving relationship can you have with a being as expansive and vast and powerful as God? How can you relate to him? In other words, you could never become powerful enough, righteous enough, holy enough, or good enough to relate to God on his level. The only way for God to relate to us on a level of friend is if God, again, humbles himself and undergoes a life that we understand. That He's like, I'm not going to make you try to, in your theological wonderment, go around and say, like, what is God like? And we're going to sit around and talk deep thoughts about what God is like. God's like, no, no, no. I'm going to become like you. Mm-hmm. So we could have fellowship on that basis, right? I'm going to be made – I like how the – I love how the writer of Hebrews puts this, that he is going to become the captain of our salvation, and he's made perfect through sufferings, right? Right? One of the key hallmarks of the Christian life, of the human life, and the human experience is suffering and death. Mm. God can say, hey, I love you and I care about you, but that empathy, does God really understand what I'm going through? Does he really have a grasp of what it's like to lose a loved one, to face and suffer rejection, to experience anxiety when it comes to confronting people that you love and care about, Mm -hmm. fearing that they might hate you? Does he know what it's like to suffer loss, reversals of fortune? Does he know what it's like to face death? to know that he is going to have to suffer. And the answer that Hebrews, uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us is, now God can, Mm. through the incarnation God has. And when you couple this, I I love, The Life of Pi is a, it's a deeply flawed book. (laughs) Let's put it that way. But there's an interesting part in The Life of Pi where the, the, the main character Pi is trying to figure out what religion that he should be in. So he's already converted to Hinduism and he starts talking to a Christian, a Catholic priest about Christianity. And he says, There's no way that I could believe in a God who would die. And the priest says, what are you talking about? And he says, if God is eternal, the way that you say, then his death isn't but for a moment, but it is experienced in the halls of eternity. He would have to experience it in the preternal existence, and he would also have to experience it for all of eternity. We live in time, so when we die, we die once. But for a creature who exists outside of time, they experience all moments forever. So if Jesus dies once, he dies forever. Mm. And he says, beyond that, if the Trinity is as unified as you say, it's not just one member that suffers. All of them suffer. All of them taste death. Why would the divine taste what is ugly? Why would you desecrate the beautiful? Why would you condemn life itself to death? Mm. And the priest responds and says, love. Mm. Now, that's an amazing, amazing statement, but that's what's going on here. The incarnation communicates to us. That God doesn't just like us. God doesn't just care about us enough to send a messenger. God loves us to the point that he's willing to die for us, right? And that is an amazing, incredible thing. So I love Christmas. I'm a big fan of holidays. Yeah. I think it's good to just have days that we could focus in on these really deep things that go beneath our notice mm. throughout the majority of the year. But yeah, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. Anything you'd like to add or or put onto that? Now, let me just stick to the text because it words it better. This is John
1: chapter 1 and verse 14. The word that was identified in the same chapter, 13 verses prior, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So if we're going to ask ourselves, what is God like? What would God be like with skin on? Because again, same book. Three chapters later, Jesus, speaking to the Samaritan woman, clarifies to her, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God isn't carne, to reference back to the point being made. But as Peter was pointing out, we need to understand that if we're going to have an understanding of God in any sense, it's going to happen in one of two ways. Speculation, me about God, or revelation, God to me that revelation and the nature the foundation of all prophecy and all scripture and the significance of christmas itself was fulfilled is celebrated and is remembered at that moment in history when god took on flesh when god condescended to us in such a way we could not only understand him in the way that we understand ourselves which is again very limited but possible but even more significantly than that as we are told again later in hebrews that we would have a high priest who is not far or distant. He is familiar with our weaknesses, tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. And knowing then on that basis, we not only have a high priest, a mediator, but the very throne of grace available to us. So there's a reason why, if the two major holidays of Christianity, on top of the resurrection, the incarnation is just as significant. So no, we do not believe that God began to exist any more than we believe his death caused him to cease to exist life or birth in that sense and death as the beginning of our creation and the end of our consciousness aren't as the world would define them kosher terms we began to die, uh, to live and we will cease in this body to exist apart from god but then even note that as well made in the image of god and i need to clarify this continuing forever, either apart from him or in fellowship with him. We aren't annihilated. But if, on the other hand, we take a step back and ask, what about God? What's different about him? Would he just be another man? No, we identify him as the God-man. And in order to understand the significance of that, read Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-11, through 11, the famous Carmen Christie. There's your homework for the week. Or feel free to ask for more about it on the program. You can cheat.
0: that's what we're here for to help people cheat yeah thanks for sharing that guys good stuff very beautiful well we've got lots of questions coming in thank you for for being part of the show and sending in your questions we have lots of stuff to delve into i wanted to mention as well yesterday we had a technical issue with uh youtube apologies if you were trying to join us on youtube and you couldn't do it we had a technical problem beyond our control uh, but it's been resolved with our streaming company but that's why it's good to know of the other platforms in case We don't show up on youtube or whatever you can jump onto another place Um, and
1: youtube's broadcast has been re-uploaded
0: it is available for viewing now oh excellent sean uploaded yesterday's show so you can go to the archive what a what a good man he is we have a question from mac d on uh, daniel 1137 his question is does that verse refer to the antichrist being homosexual possibly Uh,
1: yeah um let me Uh. Uh-huh. Let me read the whole section. Um, <laughs> that old shtick. That old Daniel one. <laughs> chapter 7 through 11, or actually even going into 12, is a very interesting section of scripture in that it gives us, Mac, a summation specifically addressing Daniel. And interestingly enough, at 8, the language of the book of Daniel switches from Aramaic, the language of trade at Daniel's time, to Hebrew, meaning the audience is specifically intended for those who speak Hebrew, i.e. the Hebrews. So with that audience in mind, he basically is giving a buildup of the vision of the four beasts. And these beasts are also referenced very frequently in Revelation and are explained in ways that you assume also are aware of in Revelation as well. So you go through the book of Daniel and you note the flow of this conversation. Chapter 11 is a continuation of a conversation that started in chapter 8 describing this, quote, cruel king from the north. And his exploits during the times that Israel has ahead for them, they'd have good things to look forward to. Meaning the Medo-Persians would start the prophetic countdown clock to the Messiah. Uh, he would Artaxerxes Longimanus, in particulars, the he I'm referring to, uh, give the order to rebuild Jerusalem's temple and its wall, even in troublesome times. The mm. Book of Nehemiah records that. But there would also be an individual they wouldn't be looking forward to, and that was the Hellenistic Empire. Specifically, down the road, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. Uh, for those of you who aren't history buffs, I'll summarize. He was the Greek equivalent of Adolf Hitler. He not only had a thing for Jews, but that thing wasn't a very nice thing thing. He fancied himself a god, Zeus incarnate, that's the term epiphanes that's the meaning of that. They also had a nickname for him Epimenides, which meant insane, showing how everyone else thought about that. But the problem is uh, he was in charge of the military, so you kind of had to play along. The Jewish people who observed in even the most cursory of fashions, jewish customs or ceremonies meaning if they circumcise their kids if they acknowledge jewish law at the expense of hellenistic law then they would not only be tortured publicly but killed as a certainty in order to be made an example of and antiochus more than anyone else in history would serve essentially as a foreshadowing of the antichrist behavior why do i say that not just because his action of desecrating the Temple by slaughtering a pig to an altar that he believed was of himself, and demanding worship accordingly. Mm. Don't if if the temple gets rebuilt and you want to bring a sacrifice as a quality A uh, Gentile, don't bring a pig. That's very very insulting to mm. a Jewish mind. Mm. In fact, general minds, if you've seen what happens in slaughterhouses, but that's an aside. When we're talking about the significance of his actions, when Jesus mentions in Matthew 24 the abomination that causes desolation, he was referencing what Antiochus foreshadowed. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. So of all the names that we call him, the cruel king of the north, the Assyrian, the uh, beast from the sea, the Antichrist, it's a reference to 1 John 4, by the way. All of these individuals are referencing that last world ruler who would have it in for the Jewish people more than any other figure in history, even more than Hitler, even more than Manasseh, and even more than Antiochus or Athaliah. Uh, if you don't want to, if you want to know the names of those people and their significance, particularly the last three, ask in the comments. But uh, Daniel Levin's continuing on that this cruel king to the north and his exploits and the reason why we would say cruel king of the north and not Antiochus is because we have the benefit of hindsight. We know what Antiochus did and what he didn't do. Mm. And in chapter 11, we kind of take a step forward from what Antiochus did into what this king is doing. And you ask, we clearly got off the same road because I do remember Antiochus doing the start of those things. But now there's no more overlap now this is talking about conquest and expansions being made into africa and the kings of the east gathering together troubling him and that the lord will directly intervene at the valley of Megiddo to end this kingdom and introduce his own Mm. that didn't happen in 180 right so who is this figure well this is why we identify him as the antichrist and it goes on to note In verse 36, so you're asking about 37. Let me read 36 through 39 and note this, uh, I guess, interesting religious policy of the cruel king of the north, and hopefully it'll set the context. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. So notice, himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. If you are getting Revelation 13 vibes from this, you're paying attention. Verse 37, he shall uh, regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all, but in their place, the gods of his forefathers, any God that actually exists, specifically the true and living God, and even the things that we make of gods in this earth. It says, in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, precious stones, and pleasant things himself. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. He shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. So in the flow of this whole conversation, Mac, there isn't really an emphasis on his marital life. So, yeah. to speak, we here in the United States have it so good in that, A, we've never had a continental war apart from the Civil War, but a foreign invader to take place, that we have the luxury of considering these things relevant to our lives, let alone our identities. When it comes to the overemphasis and the hypersexualization that takes place in the United States, Remember that Daniel wasn't written originally in 21st century English. He wasn't basing on the Urban Dictionary. He didn't use terms like goblin mode. He was speaking to a a 6th century, yes, B.C. Mm. Jewish audience. And they understood that your God, the dictation and standard for your morality, was in fact the most important thing for you. So as the Antichrist, the cruel king of the north, this man of sin, the son of perdition, this beast from the sea, is going out basically showing his god of fortresses, his god of military might and strength, Allah Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. We see him establishing this identity not through, oh, I worship this form of sexuality as opposed to the natural, Allah Romans 1, It's always and only ever talking about his worship and his exaltation of himself rather than what his forefathers knew, what those around him know, and of course what ought to be known. That is the true and living God. I've heard the argument that this passage suggests that he would be homosexual, but it is very weak and it is a heavy inference to the text Mm -hmm. that I think isn't due there. If you want to deal with the polemic against modern day hedonism, meaning not just homosexuality, but sexual immorality in general, you need to understand there are passages that address it, saying the Antichrist is gay, therefore you ought not to be. Mm. I'd say that's stupid, and I'd agree with you that there is a better way to practice your sexuality than just what seems right in your own eyes. So, Mac, be careful with these kind of arguments because it leads into conversations that don't need to be had plus it doesn't exactly fit the context it's speaking of the gods he regards not the behavior he practices on this earth and of course when it comes to how it's applied there's no further reference or significance to this applied in revelation as in regards to sexuality when it comes to the global state of the world it's going to be the same that we're seeing today everyone's doing right in their own eyes and it's only going to continue to be worse if not more proactive in rebellion against God in the face of his judgments they'll shake their fists in his face and say they will not repent of their sexual immoralities nor their sorceries, nor their thefts they'll see the wrath that is due to them for their sin and they'll curse God for it which is essentially the logical equivalent of getting disciplined for swearing and swearing when you find out the punishment it's not helping you so let me know if that helps Mac anything dad
0: no. good. very good yeah, thank you, Mac, for your question. Appreciate you being part of the show, one of our regulars. Uh, question from 12-year-old Cariad, who appears to have the same last name as I do. Hmm. Uh, no relation, though, right? I know, no, no relation. Super
2: common name, Carriad Robinson. <laughs> <Carrie> <laughs> Robinson. I mean, I'm sure there's millions of them. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. 12-year-olds.
0: Yeah. Ten a penny. Uh, she asks, what does it mean that God hates the sin but not the sinner?
2: Mm. No, very good question. Yeah, yeah so... Uh, this is not actually not a passage from the Bible, right? So there's no passage of the Bible that says that. So we have to be very, very careful. What we're trying to do is we're trying to make sense of how the Bible talks about sinners before God. So there are various passages that talk about God hating particular individuals. Like for instance, in the book of Malachi, it actually says that God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. Uh, We have various instances in where God talks about hating the people who are oppressing his people, hating drunkards, things like that. But in John 3, verse 16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So how do we make sense of this idea that God is hating people in the Old Testament, but yet he loves the entirety of the world and he offers the entirety of the world salvation, no matter how much somebody sins, God always offers them a message of hope and reconciliation with himself and Jesus took the penalty upon the cross. Mm. So how do we balance these uh, these concepts that our within the Bible? Well, that's
0: what we're asking you. Right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so what modern theologians have done is they've, instead of trying to sift through kind of like the Old Testament vernacular and why the Hebrews use particular words and what does hate mean for the Hebrew versus what does hate mean for the modern Western person, they instead just came up with this phrase, that helps explain their theological position, that God doesn't hate the individual. So when mm. it talks about God hating Esau, he's not saying that he just hated Esau the mom- moment that dude was conceived. He's like, that guy's red-haired, he's hairy, <laughs> and you know he <laughs> probably has a beard, probably wore a hat, <laughs> and he's just, just this horrible, horrible person, and I'm going to torture him, and I'm going to make sure that Jacob always gets everything that's coming to him because he's terrible. Or is it saying that God hated the character of Esau, Mm. that the behavior of Esau was something that was so abominable to God that he withdrew his presence from him and instead gave the blessings to Jacob. Mm. What's actually going on? And the obvious inference is that it's the former, Not, I mean, I'm sorry, it's the latter, not the former, that it's not that God hates the individual, but he does hate particular behaviors. And the more that those individual behaviors become consummate with someone's character, the more God is going to actually begin to hate them. So there is a distinction between somebody doing something out of character and someone doing something within their character. So for instance, you can have a very, very good, respectable person that does the right thing, but you bring them into intense circumstances, things that are beyond their control. Let's say they're normally a very Gentle and loving person, but they come home and they see their wife is cheating on them, and they lose themselves in a rage and end up actually committing an act of violence. Maybe not killing anybody, but maybe striking their wife or fighting the individual that is having an affair with the wife. Is that consummate with their character, or is that an individual action that was born out of extraneous circumstances? Mm-hmm. And obviously, it depends on the person. Right? So it depends on the person. We have to we have to look at that person's life as a whole. As someone's character becomes more and more defined, God's hatred becomes more and more directed at the character of the person and not the individual action. So in the beginning, Mm. Esau, you see he's doing interesting things, but over time, you see he just kind of becomes that person. Mm. He becomes the kind of impulsive, just foolish, impatient, arrogant individual that is always going to make the decision to sell his birthright for a bowl of soup. Right? He's always going to choose the cheap and easy way out, the instant gratification as opposed to the long-term suffering. Right? God looks at Pharaoh and Pharaoh hardening his heart right towards the release of his children, uh, the children of Israel. Is that just an impulsive thing? Pharaoh was acting out of fear? Well, after 10 plagues, you have to kind of throw that out. And you have to say, no, Pharaoh is just the kind of person that's always going to refuse to liberate the people that he is oppressing. He is just that kind of person so as someone's character becomes more and more definable about who they are god begins to hate their character more and more now once again as christians we actually do believe that even character can be reversed through the gospel that we can be sanctified and made more like god that our character can actually be holy that it could be brought back into alignment with mm-hmm. what god wants so even the people that god is looking at and saying i really really hate your character he still has this message of salvation that is available for them but the question is is once you get to a certain level where your character is that deeply ingrained in you no matter how much grace is shown to you you spit upon it is there a time where you just can't repent the writer of hebrews says yes so when he's talking about esau he says that he couldn't repent even though he sought it with tears in other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that that character was so identifiable with Esau that he would never actually repent. Mm-hmm. He would cry, he would seek repentance, he wants to do the right thing, but he is so ingrained in his selfishness that he would never be able to actually change his character. Mm-hmm. He is just that dedicated to his folly, that he might hate what his character is doing to him, but he doesn't hate it enough to change or to seek out help in order to change. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on there. So. It's it's kind of difficult in time to see it, uh, that it is okay for Christians to sometimes, again, accuse people's character to just say, you are this kind of person. This is your pattern of behavior. I don't just have to pick out individual actions. I could show that there's a pattern of behavior that spans long periods of time. This seems to be the kind of person you are, which is a very different conversation than having a conversation with someone about an individual action. I don't like what you did as opposed to saying this is actually representative of the kind of person you are. Those are two very different conversations. So it becomes a little dicey and that's why that that phrase can be kind of elementary. It's not that I don't like it, but I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful for us to understand what God's perspective on sin versus individuals is. Mm. But I, I do want to caution people about missing that nuance between individual action and uh, component character. Mm. But I hope that helps. Anything you want to add or clarify on that? No, not on that one.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, if that's true what you're saying, it's very challenging to take habitual sin very seriously Mm. because, I mean, I think we hear more commonly that the the whole thing God hates the sin, it's not the sinner. Mm. But if we continue in these ways, we can become that, basically embody that sin. We do become that kind of person. Or a culture that
2: names themselves after their sins, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. Right, yeah. Which, so. and
2: this is in a shameless plug, is one of the theses of my book, Rooted in Sin, Rescued by Love. <laughs> <laughs> for those who want to pick it up on Amazon, for no, makes a great stocking <laughs> Now, Yeah, no. it's this time of year. I've seen uh, that but, book. You need a big stocking. <laughs> <laughs> you get the Kindle version. <laughs> a, yeah, no, it's a great book. Uh, but anyway, yeah, that, that's one of the points that I'm trying to make, is that the writers in the Bible <laughs> are talking about character, right? When they're using the word sin, oftentimes they're actually using definable character traits and not just individual action. Mm. Uh, So Paul, when he talks about sin in Romans seven, he is again, he's referencing a character trait in which he constantly chooses the wrong thing, Mm. not just I'm doing these individual wrong things. And that's why he laments at the end, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If it was just individual actions, then the patent advice that pastors tend to give people is we'll stop doing that. We'll just quit it, Paul, Mm -hmm. quit sinning, right? They would be very applicable. But the problem is, is that it's not just individual action. It's I find in myself a character quality yeah. that habitually brings me to the same mistake.
0: Yeah.
2: And the solution for a character quality is going to be a lot more involved and a lot more invasive than simply, well, I cheated on my wife. I'll just try really hard not to do that again. No, 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 that, that shows a character and that needs to be dealt with. And yeah. this is, uh, again, what I do as a counselor where when people come in, if all I did is say, well, just stop doing that, uh, then it's kind of, I don't need an hour to do that, right? I'm, not, right? I'm not just trying to help people understand what's the bad behavior that you shouldn't be practicing. I think you already know that. Most people know that. It's why did you do that wrong thing, even though you knew it was wrong yeah. and you habitually did it again and again and again. Yeah. There's something in your character that we need to look at.
0: Yeah, very good. Well, Carrie, i hope that helps you out. Um, very good question. Great answer too. Thank you for that. Uh, question from Robert here, somewhat related, I guess. Could be. Good evening, brethren. Good evening to you as well. Thank you for being there. Uh, so my question is from James 4, 11, and 12 about judging a brother. So when does maybe confronting a brother versus judging a brother come into play, and is there a difference scripturally? Thank you. Well, so. I guess
1: the uh, best place to start with an interpretation is within the book itself and then work out from there. If you go to the next chapter, James 5 goes on to note, if you find a brother erring and sin. You save him from a multitude of things. So the point being made is I test not only my handling of the text, but the conclusions. Your conclusion and handling both, Robert, is that we shouldn't judge, uh, and then how do I confront without judging? Well, judgment is kind of a very often misunderstood term in our day and age, uh, judging literally means to come to conclusions, and there's a right and a wrong conclusion that you can make about people. Jesus emphasized, I think it was in John 7, that uh, if we're going to judge, we should judge with righteous judgment. In Matthew chapter 7, I remember that one for certain, he doesn't, uh, the passage starts, judge not, and that's usually where the secular world leaves it, but then say, lest you be judged, for with the measure you judge another, you will be judged. And then it goes on to give an example of you judging not only a speck in someone else's eye, but also God judging you with a plank in your own eye. Does that mean that God's sinful for judging you? Obviously not. Then it goes on to say, do not give what is holy to dogs, do not cast your pearls before swine. That requires making a judgment, a conclusion about the people you're talking to, whether they're judges or whether they're, excuse me, pigs or dogs the kind of people who won't receive the good things you offer them because they're just animalistic they're only there to hurt you. So the point being made there Robert is obviously judgment isn't the issue it's the attitude you bring to it. So let's read James 4:11. It says, "Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother." So notice already Robert, we got a very specific kind of judgment, the unrighteous judgment. The, uh, as we would put it in rhetoric, attributing of motive or malice in this case. He speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able both to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Now note that question is often taken as an exclusive negative, but it's actually clarifying the previous sentence. There is one lawgiver. If we're going to make judgments, let it be in alignment with his nature, not our own. If we're going to acknowledge the fact that we are all in need of grace, then we get to chapter 5 and understanding I'm a sinner, they're a sinner, I'm going to pull them out of this and save myself at the same time because we're both avoiding this pitfall a la Galatians 6. But the point is just that, Robert. Test the conclusions, test the ideas that are being made in all this. Because uh, in a culture that doesn't want accountability for its actions, we need to make sure that we don't fall into that trap among the body of Christ. Again, the passage isn't speaking of in its full flow the danger of judging people, but having that sort of attitude that's always looking for evil everywhere but at home. If we deal with our own house first before God, then we're going to realize just how much mercy we've been given and then be the living example of many parables Jesus told of the one who was forgiven much and loves much. That's the judgment, to do it from a position of grace, from the lawgiver's position, that you've been shown mercy, rather than from a position of you are not acting like God, and in reality you're saying, and this is James' point, you're not acting like me. That's what you ought to avoid.
2: Yeah, one, one quick thing on that. Um, the Bible doesn't make nonsensical statements, just as a general rule. And a lot of people don't think, think this through. <laughs> the people that Sean's talking about who are like, you can't judge me. Uh, you're not supposed to judge your fellow man. <clears throat> to say you shouldn't judge me is a judgment. So in other words, you are making a judgment about me <laughs> when you say that. It's a self-refuting yeah. statement. If you say ultimately, in an ultimate sense, you shall not judge, you have given a judgment. Mm-hmm. So the Bible is not going to make a nonsensical statement. And that means that if you see the phrase, judge not lest you should be judged, as Sean already pointed out in the James passage, as well as when Jesus says that, there are caveats given, meaning that there is a context in which that's saying. It's not an mm-hmm. ultimate statement that's meant to be taken in an ultimate sense. Mm-hmm. It is a statement that's meant, made to be taken in a very particular sense, right? So uh, James talking about talking evil about other people, Jesus has many ways of interpreting it, but one of the most obvious ones is whatever you start to condemn within your own life, it is right and correct for people to start to call you out for that same behavior. If I start condemning people for lying and I lie, it is correct for people to call me out for my lying. You know, Mm -hmm. that's just the way that it is. So Mm -hmm. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he's talking about what by what law we're going to be condemned, well, it's going to be the law that you condemn others, right? So if you're going to judge other people, guess what? You're going to be judged in return that's just the way it works yep. uh the only way to avoid that is like i said to make no judgments <laughs> but like
0: you can't really do that no. in a sensible way right very good robert thank you for uh it was robert wasn't it that asked that question yes. yes thank you so much appreciate you we get a lot of questions coming and if we do run out of time sometimes the best way is to join us tomorrow and add your question afresh because if we have a uh, kind of leftover questions it's hard to know when to get to those. So that's a little tip, a little secret tip. Come tomorrow, <laughs> Pro tip. put your question in or send it to our email address as well and just, or you know, or maybe bribe me or no. <laughs> so, yeah, like you
2: send a little Venmo to Dave Ross's <laughs> account. Right. You get top of the list. Oh, boy.
0: and Don't judge me for that.
1: I uh, will come to conclusions and you can't stop me. <laughs> that's
0: right. Question from Yari about the rapture. Um, he asked, "Will our clothes be left behind at the rapture, or will there will there not be any trace of us at all, or maybe some traces of us left?" Um, and also, how is God going to handle things like if a pilot is flying an airplane and then raptured, then suddenly there's no pilot? Um, do we know anything about the rapture and kind of the chaos, I guess, that it may? I cause? actually think you
2: and I have differing opinions on this one. Ooh. We've
0: talked about it yeah. before. Yeah, so. <laughs> um,
1: my position is we aren't told the most objective and consistent conclusion in the approach of scripture that I take and can pretty, uh, I think, modestly defend, is the idea that when we're brought from a state of natural to supernatural, it's the same kind of transition that those Paul was describing in 1 Corinthians 15 are going through. Uh, We need to make conclusions what we don't know rather than what we do. As far as the collateral damage of the rapture, uh, we had a question just last week from, well, not from Holly, it was relayed to us from Holly, I know the friend that was asking it, but the asking of why would God cause such chaos? Is he a God of chaos? Well, understand that the transition from the heir of the church into the tribulation is a time of transition from mercy and patience into God's wrath. So, my conclusion from that and the bad logic therein is the uh, inference that God's been warning you something's going to happen for 2,000 years and you could have been a part of the good side of this and being taken out of the way the status of being in the tribulation and thus an object or a participant in god's wrath puts you in a place where you're the only one to blame because you've been ignoring those warnings up until this point that's my position as far as how god's going to handle it that the consequences are forthcoming Uh, Peter, as far as the overall question, you have a differing view.
2: Yeah, yeah. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. We shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So Paul here is talking about the resurrection, which is not to be confused with the rapture. So at the end, the the last trumpet, whatever you want to interpret this last trumpet as being, that's when the general resurrection happens, where all the people who have died in faithfulness to God will be raised up bodily. Now, we know that all the faithful saints who have died previous to the moment that I'm speaking right now are in heavenly places right now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, but there's going to be a time where God is going to reunify the mind with the body and raise it up in a resurrected body that mirrors Christ's resurrected body, the one he was sporting after his own resurrection. So this moment, because there's a distinction here, what I believe is that the rapture will be a rapture of our soul, not a rapture of our body. I think that the, the resurrection will happen when Jesus returns. But that's what's being referenced here as the last trumpet. So when you go through the book of Revelation, the last trumpet actually signifies the last slew of judgments that God pours out upon mankind, mm-hmm. uh, the bold judgments, and then he returns. So what I believe is that that's the last trumpet that's being referenced, and that's when the resurrection is going to happen. So when we're raptured, it'll just kind of look like we died. That's that's what will happen. Mm-hmm. The soul will leave the body, which will give a lot of credence to people who don't really like Christians. And, and they'll, they'll have many interesting stories. I believe they'll have many interesting stories about what happened to us Uh, That maybe we were foolish and we got sick and that we died because of our folly or something like that. Mm. Maybe some of us are going to see it as a as a type of divine judgment that we were killed as a as a result of divine judgment. I'm not really sure, but that's how I interpret the text. Experimental medicine. Yeah, (laughs) that's how I interpret the text. But you know that, as Sean said, we don't really know for certain. That's just something that I I think. But as far as the second half of the question, you and I wouldn't be in disagreement. We we agree on that one. The chaos that will ensue
1: from unmanned or at least unconsciously manned bodies uh, (laughs) in this state. (laughs) You're in the tribulation now. You have a lot of explaining to do of everything that brought you to that point, but you can still come to the Lord. Just be aware it's not the best time to do
0: that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And make sure that at least the pilot or the co-pilot is not a Christian, at least one of them.
2: <laughs> or make sure you're a Christian. <laughs> get on a plane. Get, get that her. would make sense that as well. <laughs> get your 2,000 miles in if you got a man it, you know?
0: <laughs> Yeah, either be a Christian or a pilot, you, you'll, be, you'll be fine. I'd suggest Christian. Uh, great question, Yori. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, Torbeth, I guess we've got oh, just a couple of minutes here. But yeah. She asks about um, uh, the, the dry bones, the dead bones rising in Ezekiel. Um, is it a literal event or was that just symbolic? It's symbolically describing a literal event.
2: So there are many ways to <laughs> real quick just get into it and I'll, I'll pass it back to you. Yeah, I'm going to try to only take a minute here. So uh, Ezekiel is basically at, at a time in which Israel is departing from God. And what happens at the end of Ezekiel, the, uh, the deportation, of the Israelites, is never fully reversed. Israel never becomes an autonomous nation again after that moment. They're ruled either by the Greeks or the Romans or the Babylonians or the Persians. They're always in a state of oppression from that moment on. And so Ezekiel's talking about a reinvigoration of Israel, God gathering his people and bringing them back into the land. So what we see in the Valley of Dry Bones is a resurrection of the nation of Israel. So different people have taken it different ways throughout history because most people after the exile from under the Roman rule in AD 70, most people are like, that can never happen. This can't be literal. We have to interpret it some other way. But clearly it is <laughs> it's meant to be taken legitimately mm. because it happened. Uh, now this reintegration of the land is told in stages. So if you read the whole passage, it's not like the bodies just get up and then they're totally whole. Mm. There's actually kind of a nightmarish Halloween element to it where they get up as skeletons and then slowly they get back on their their muscles and the sinews and then their flesh. And it's kind of creepy a little bit, but it's also kind of cool. Awesome. Uh, It's kind of awesome. And (laughs) what we see happening in Israel, I believe, is that this gradual reintegration of the Jews, not only into the Mm. land, but into the faith of their fathers. Mm. Uh, As Scott talked about last week, the majority of Jews are atheists. So not only, the, yes, they're back in the land, but number one, they don't own the Temple Mount, which is important. But number two, most of them are atheists. They don't have a faith in God. So what I believe is, ta- is being spoken of here is not just a physical reintegration into the land, but a gradual coming back to God. Um, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, just, again, read verses 21 through the end of the chapter, and it explains the symbols. Mm-hmm. What was the significance of
0: the skeletons? And it's describing a literal event. Right. Very good. Well, we are out of time, I would say. I'm gonna call this. Not now. <laughs> but when
2: I'm done speaking <laughs> But when we I'm will done be speaking adam- slowly. <laughs> gonna we pull shall Dr.
0: Phil on us. Twenty three, twenty two. Thank you so much for joining us. Great questions again. If we didn't get your questions, we apologize, but the best way is to join us again tomorrow, put your question in early or send us an email. We'll get to those first. We appreciate it. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Peter, thank you welcome sean thank you and
1: if it's okay for me to mention this have a happy birthday
0: oh thank you yes it is my birthday that's right you're 60 <laughs> i'm not 60 <laughs> 49 and a half 59 and a half i'm not even that god bless you thank you for being part of the show have a wonderful evening we'll see you back again tomorrow from all the same